You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. I'm very pleased and flattered to be here with Claire from Claire Cousins Architects today. And Claire, it almost feels like there's a group of us that have been on this journey now for the past 10 years, <laughs> although it seems to have gone very, very quickly. I know, it feels like yesterday, but yes, many, many fun times and fun parties with Think Brick. <laughs> So before we get started into why Brick, and obviously you've been a jury member for two years, all of your, a lot of your projects that have been entered in across multiple categories has ended up as finalists awards. But before we get into that, I just wonder whether you could talk to me a little bit about how you grew up and I guess why architecture? Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne and had the fortune of living in Europe as a child. My dad was a doctor and so we lived in London when I was eight and then Germany when I was 10 and kind of fully kind of immersed in a German school, which was really interesting. And I think even to some degree that experience of coming from living in the Melbourne suburbs to actually living in an apartment life in Europe was Mm -hmm. a very different thing that I've become more aware of looking back. And you know, Australia had such an obsession with housing and less so about apartment living. Mm. And I suppose that kind of kept a connection with Germany. And when I finally um, finished high school and decided to study architecture, which was again, a very last minute decision. I was sort of maths and science at school, did quite a few creative pursuits like drama and music, but not hadn't really pursued creative arts or you know, visual arts. But got to when I had to write the dreaded university selection down, I was like, actually, just need something a bit more creative. So just took a stab at architecture. Wow, it was so a complete fluke, really. No um, one suggested it to you? No. I literally was sitting outside the <laughs> Careers Council office and they said, sit at this computer, have a look at a few, this list of professions. And at the top of the list was A for architecture. And, wow. I, and then I went in and said, oh, what, what about that? And she's like, oh, yeah, you could do that. And I was like, okay, I'll put that down. I think I probably would have got home and my mum and dad probably would have encouraged it. So I got into RMIT and then, which was kind of a really perfect choice for me as a university. It was much more kind of conceptual and probably dragged me out of my pragmatic, sort of more scientific analytical thinking and to sort of think more creatively. But then went and did an exchange in Berlin in my third year, which was again, a great kind of personal learning. So just taking me back to that, you've picked something that Mm. you, what I'm understanding is you really don't know what it's about. How different was that to what you thought it would be studying architecture? Yeah, I think even to the point where getting into RMIT, you had to, I think it was an interview and a a little home assignment. And so I kind of ended up taking myself off to the local library before the interview and went to the, I think it was the Malvern Library and went to the architecture section to kind of look at a few architecture books. I thought I better kind of look at what architecture is about. And of course, it probably had 15 books in the whole library on architecture and it would have had all the kind of classics there was the Frank Lloyd Wright and the Pompidou Centre and I remember I kind of formed an opinion that the building I really liked was the Guggenheim Museum by Frank Lloyd Wright and and then one I didn't like was the Pompidou Centre because of all of its kind of exposed you know I would have been completely inarticulate but all the stuff on the outside which ironically now is one of my favourite buildings (laughs) but it was that thing of actually going oh I have no no idea but I think as a 18 year old people underestimate that everyone has an opinion about architecture. Everyone has, mm. you know, lived in houses, been in public space, been to public buildings or institutions or theatres. And so we all have those experiences. It just becomes 
a developed sense of or a heightened sense of understanding so anyway it was a real fluke but I couldn't have chosen anything more suitable because it kind of gives you all the there's the arts and the mm. science and that's what yeah. I really love and and engineering hadn't come up because you just said that you were a maths and science girl oh no that's what actually the school was pushing me into engineering oh and then okay I, thought, I can't be an engineer for my whole, <laughs> you know, I really loved physics and chemistry but, and then I always liked doing things that you weren't supposed to do. So I kind of thrived in the kind of mechanic subjects of fixing machines and because I thought, yeah, I don't expect a girl to be able to do this, but I can do, do it. it. And so yep. it's, I kind of often like going against the grain. But then I thought, oh, it just didn't feel whole enough. Maybe mm. that was what it was. I kind of felt like I needed something else and that's what kind of made me think I need something that's got creativity as well. And so I did interrupt you, but then you went to Germany on an exchange. Yeah. and so when I was... 20 in kind of third year I went to Germany studied at the the TU in Berlin and again just kind of blind ignorance really and sort of lined up a lady to live with who was an English teacher in her 50s rented a room in her apartment and she was kind of wonderful to sort of spend the time with and go to the university and you know do all the classes in German and I had to my German was really schlecht as I'd say you know very <laughs> poor again it kind of became an eye-opener too we were doing a project thankfully a group project so we could design and my friend had lived in America so she spoke very good English so we tended to design a bit in English and she'd do most of the presenting but it was designing apartment buildings and I kept wanting to create all these external spaces like balconies (laughs) she's like what are you on balconies for because in Australia it's all about being outside and it just wasn't done the majority of the year is cold and so no we don't have balconies and it was just this kind of culture clash it's kind of funny we kind of think that we're so similar but we're actually quite different and, and what other sort of architectural impacts would you say that you saw as really big differences that you learned over there? Yeah, I mean, or even other little things like there was a full subject. It was um, heating technology was one subject because, again, rather than we would have construction as a kind of holistic. So in Germany, I think they tend to graduate with actually an engineering component to their degree as well. So wow. it's kind of a little bit different. But I think just being exposed and immersed in kind of European culture and Berlin was a kind of fascinating place. It was back in 1996, so it was still only a few years after the Berlin Wall came down and the East was kind of super gritty and slowly gentrifying, but also being in sort of middle of Europe that you could just travel to all these places. Yes. So you go to Prague for the weekend and you go to Paris and London and it just that prolonged year of studying for six months and then backpacking and at the end of my semester before I went backpacking I kind of got a part-time job in a second-hand clothing store which kind of you know honed my German because you had to speak German because you were being paid and yeah yeah, I just think it's it's kind of such a rite of passage and such Mm. a great personal experience for any young person but I think the exposure to architecture as a young architect is kind of priceless as well. Mm. And did you outside of that extra six months did you stay longer and explore Europe or? Yeah no I so I worked for a few more months I think in Berlin to save up money Mm -hmm. and then then did Italy and Spain and had a few friends come over and kind of met with them backpacking and you get into all sorts of you know experiences <laughs> getting kind of mugged in Barcelona getting pushed over in train stuff you know all those kind of but mm. but again it was back in the time of you kind of think well it's only kind of 25 years ago but there was no email you know no. emails probably were just coming out but it was 96 I had a calling card to call back to home and it was really expensive. Like a phone call was like $20. Mm. I had a boyfriend in Australia who I'd kind of left who's now my husband, which was kind of interesting. I kind of thought, oh, we'll see if this lasts. I'll go away for a year, and, but it did. And, he pined. Um, he, he pined He kind of waited, yeah. And <laughs> so he and I wrote letters, and even mum and dad, we wrote letters to each other because it was too expensive to call. So it's such a kind of 
makes you feel really old that it's so ancient, the method that we communicated. Well, but now we've got this repository of these lovely letters of what yeah. I received from him and what he received from me. And I was thinking the other day, like, remember when internet cafes were a thing? Yeah. You'd be overseas, you'd have to go in, pay your 30 minutes mm. or whatever. That was probably like five or six years after that. Yeah. But I, I know all of these things that you've totally forgotten about. Mm. Yeah. But even that you're, you would just travel with this kind of lump of a lonely planet. You'd really obviously discover places, but you'd kind of ring a couple of days ahead and you'd book in and you'd you know, find a, a little pension to stay in. And it was kind of like that was your, your Bible of how yes. you would find things, whereas now it's totally changed. <laughs> there was no TripAdvisor back there. There was no TripAdvisor. <laughs> exactly. No Google Maps. No. Because you'd started architecture now and you're going around Europe, are you looking at it from an architectural lens or did that not really come into it? No, look, I think you do. But at the same time, you, again, there's still not, if I look, if I reflect back on it, I still think there was still a sense of innocence. There would be certainly be architectural experiences, but I'd get a lot more of them now as a kind of more yes. you know, established architect or experienced architect. So it's that kind of blind, oh, yeah, that's really, you know, interesting <laughs> and this kind of complete immersion because you Everything regionally is so different and, and also you're experiencing things from someone on a travelling on a shoestring and it's all those kind of different experiences. But, yeah, I, I, I definitely think it showed the possibilities, but I'm sure there was a huge amount of things that I missed. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, as you, I just sort of wondered whether it had changed your view. Yeah. So you've, you've stayed over there for longer than you intended mm. and then you come back to Australia. Mm. Was that willingly or a little bit begrudging? No, no, I'd always came. I always planned to come back. Well, I kind of came back and then it was my 21st. You know, how that was always a big thing. That was a big thing back, back then. Your friends. But uh, no, I think a year was enough. I mean, I, the architecture degrees are typically five years and RMIT at that time had just stopped doing the year out experience, whereas Melbourne Uni was still doing that. And that was a really formative system to encourage students to go into the workplace. But because it was early mid 90s, work had dropped off. There just wasn't enough places for students. And so I had actually worked in practice since first year, though, in smaller suburban practices. But no, I think the year was enough. It was time to kind of get back in. I didn't want to take forever to finish my degree, even though I still took me seven years to do it. So, yeah. And so just talk to me a little bit about the, the rest of the time finishing your degree. I think RMIT was terrific, but it's not what I'd call it when I was studying there, not a campus kind of university yeah. you know, that you imagine, that I would imagine something like Melbourne Uni would be, where you're yeah. kind of coming together and there's all the kind of social committees. Architecture school, it's a kind of, it's a hard course and you work really hard and then you tend to have a you know part-time job on the side to kind mm. of pay for your living. So you kind of went in, presented and came back. And so I certainly had a few friends, but formed some great friends there, like Mel Bright from yes. Studio Bright. But she and I had known of each other before starting there. We had mutual friends at high school, but then literally on the first day of uni in first year, we kind of met outside the building and went up in the lift together and it was kind of this you know interesting that we did that from the beginning and then have remained such kind of firm friends through. Yes. so it was really nice we did our thesis together well not together but at the same time under the same supervisor and did quite a few studios together and so there was this she I think went and traveled and went to LA maybe at uni and so we'd kind of come apart and come together and a lot of friends had studio spaces in the city, whereas we were still living at home with our parents. And so I would often, most nights, actually go and kind of study and we'd make models together at her house. So there was many long nights drinking Earl Grey tea, sitting at oh. her huge kind of AO drawing board, cutting models. And I was not a night person and she was the night person. And so she was always kind of, you know, keeping me awake <laughs> and functioning to get the, the work out. But it's, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a very taxing course yes and uh, but it's there's so much i mean it's one of those things how do you impart all that information to a student about architecture and i'm a, i'm a big believer that the the course 
can only teach you so much. That so mm. much of it is learned from people and in practice, and and it's why it's so important that students work in practice mm. from as early as possible. And even yes. if they can't get into it, an architecture practice. I worked for a builder at the Prince of Wales for a while, and in that job worked on delivering architectural work that Woodmarsh had designed. So you kind of you're looking at it from different perspectives and it's mm. giving you new learnings of thinking about things from a builder's perspective rather than an architect's perspective. So, And that's such an important thing to get an understanding of because mm. you can, I mean, even just having gone through the process a couple of times now with my own renovations, you come in with all these ideas and then mm. suddenly your architect says, this is going to take three years and you think, oh, no, I mean, I'm a high achiever. This is going <laughs> to take 12 months and then you get introduced to the builder and they say it's going to take five years. Yeah, so. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about your trips to Malaysia or one of, one oh, of yeah. those trips. So tell, tell me how you got back overseas again. Oh, yeah. So Mel and I had finished <laughs> our thesis and really we were sort of, oh, I can't believe it. It's kind of end of an era. And then Sand Helsel was our thesis supervisor and she had a friend who was running a practice, an interior architecture practice in KL in Kuala Lumpur. And she said, oh, Huey needs a hand. She's doing these retail stores for Virgin and retail design. This is kind of 2001. So mm. retail design was not really yet a thing, you know, no. it's obviously become enormous globally. Yes. And she's like, yeah, and we're like, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have a go, you know, we'll design something here in Melbourne. And so we kind of came up with this, I looking back on this hideous design, <laughs> this, <laughs> this kind of completely cliche kind of red ribboning kind of, anyway, whatever, but it was for Virgin. I don't know if it was a mobile store, but anyway, Virgin store. And then she's like, oh, they want one of you to come over. And we're like, no, nah, it's both of us or none of us. And so we were like, of course we want to go to Kuala Lumpur, all expenses paid. She, the owner of the business was Chinese Malaysian, had married an Australian man. They set up over there and she just had her, ba her first baby. So they kind of needed help because she was kind of out of the business. So we went over. It was kind of this crazy six weeks. We went over there and she asked us to kind of look after her practice. I mean, yes, Mel and I worked in practices as students uh, and but we're like oh sure of course you qualify and, and maybe there was a sentiment back then that maybe being that it was a British client in Virgin and we had to keep meeting in Singapore that they wanted that kind of English as a first language yes. interface yeah and there wasn't probably people within the the workplace in the, the practice to kind of take that lead yeah but we were flying kind of business class to Singapore once a week to present to Virgin executives we oh, absolutely wow. loved it but then we we're staying with the director's house that's lovely house in Bangsar in the kind of expat area and then we'd drive in back then Mel was a smoker so sitting with her in a car on the commute was fun <laughs> driving on the Malaysian freeways and then we'd share a bed shared a room for six weeks it certainly cemented us as kind of sisters from, from different <laughs> parents really so and familiarity then, yeah, does exactly. that and then I had to head back to Australia after six weeks because we had a Ben and I had a trip planned to Europe for graduating and and Mel was like yeah I'm not doing anything so she sat on and ran the practice basically or worked there in a senior capacity for a year which was amazing so she had a great time yeah and then how long were you overseas on your second trip then with Ben? Was that oh, a long Oh, that was time? kind of two months, I oh, think. Oh, okay. You know, it was oh. just one of those things where you think, okay, well, I'm, I've now grown up and I'm getting a, going to get a real job. How often do you get to kind of head away for two months? So, but interestingly, it was September 11 just hit. And so we were going on September 15, because I always remember it was four days after September 11. And so the world was this kind of different place. Yeah. And we were going to do Turkey and all these kind of interesting places in Paris and Italy. But we kind of, no one knew what was happening. So we kind of flew into Paris and did that properly and then really just spent two months, which I love that we did Italy from top to bottom for two months. But mm. it's kind of really nice to do one country and particularly one like Italy where it's so regional, the food and the, and mm. the culture um, and the wine and, you know, that you can do something from kind of top to bottom and really thoroughly because mm. so often I feel like you're, 
you get to Europe and even when we go over, we've been to Venice, you and mm. I at the same time and you kind of right, rush there and you go there and it's kind of, you feel like you're kind of ticking boxes. Yeah. And so just talk to me, were there any, when you're thinking back in terms of the, the early experiences that you had and before you decided to, to start your own practice, were there any projects that really sort of have stuck in your mind as fond memories or, or on the alternate side, crying memories? Oh, before I started practice? <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, I remember making some fundamental mistakes when I worked for the builder. And so my, my role was contract administrator. It was a really small in-house construction company. And I had to meet the trades and order the materials. I had to order these kind of Italian imported terrazzo tiles for the Aurora Spire Retreat that Woodmarsh had designed. But the whole fit out had been designed on the perfect tile set out rather than just designing the walls and then cutting the tiles where you needed to. Everything was set out. So the tiles had to go down first. And I normally would pride myself on being very good at maths and good at calculating and just totally stuffed up the calculation. So that thing, the old adage of measure twice, cut once, I should have measured <laughs> twice before I placed the order. And it was like 12 week lead time on the tiles. And so the tiles oh, wow. arrive, we're probably 50% short of tiles. I don't know how I stuffed it up. And so it's one of those things as a young working, I mean, I was a student still then, that was while I was an undergraduate, but you don't sleep for a week. And then the, you know, the, your boss is trying not to kind of yell at you, but trying to find solutions. <laughs> and so you can't, and it, I suppose some of those experiences are good to remember that mistakes can happen mm. and the person was trying their hardest and still stuffed it up and that you've got to find solutions around that. So it's not so much an architecture one, but it's, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and then how did you come to deciding? I mean, I think it's incredibly brave to, to sort of say you're going to go out on your own and start your own practice. Mm. How did that come about? I, I think it was, I can't even remember it just as I always thought I would. Maybe it's a, I don't know, I, I know when I started at Woodmarsh and I was there for about nearly four years, I, I couldn't, even as a fairly young architect, I couldn't help but have an opinion on things. And sometimes <laughs> I had to go, oh, no, I just told you, you know, tongue, it's not your turn to talk yet. And so maybe there's that. It wasn't a confidence, but a, a desire to kind of take a lead on things. And mm. maybe I don't remember thinking, oh, that'll be make it easier later in life with children because it sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. But it just was, I always thought that I would have my own practice. Mm. Mm. And I mm. think I was always open to the idea too of maybe having a partner and Mel and I were such good friends. But in some respects, I kind of found working in Malaysia while we worked really well, it kind of cemented that that wasn't, our friendship was more important than actually working together. And sure. there's kind of some things that you end up maybe we're too similar in some areas or different in others. And, and in some respects, Mel's a kind of, is director of hers and I'm director of mine, but you we're so fortunate to have, and with Amy as well, you can support one another's business and yes. kind of really lean on each other with regards to business and issues and architecture and whatever. Mm. But we're so lucky there's such a great collegiate culture, particularly in Melbourne, but even that's yeah. kind of expanded to other states. And, I think so too. That's yeah. that's the overwhelming feeling I felt being in this space. And I think that there's just all of us that thought we were going through, well, I thought that I was going through things that were completely different and then we all got together and they were all the same. Yeah. And I think that's still the same now except our kids are a lot older. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's a, it's a lovely, uh, and I don't know because obviously I haven't worked in any other profession for the last sort of 10 years, but mm. it's a lovely thing about this profession, mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah, the women. But I, I guess you got to ask yourself, I mean, I look back at it and I just think when we looked at emerging architects to be part of the About Face Awards. For whatever reason, it's, it's really been sort of the female architects that really took that on mm. and then have just been engaged ever, ever since mm. and, and also then continued to design in bricks. So it's yeah. it's been a lovely journey. Mm. Yeah. I think what's 
interesting to me is how few female leaders or more not leaders but mentors there were mm. people in the profession to kind of look to when we were yes. going through and it's it's completely changed but it, it really highlights I think for us it would have been kind of Kirsten Thompson was a tutor in my first semester mm. and then there was Shelley Penn and there were certainly women and then there was even older women than that like Anne Cunningham who she she's well and truly retired now and she was someone that I kind of went and spoke to because her um, husband and my father were colleagues and to kind of talk to her about being an architect and she used to do a lot of social housing it was a really interesting architect but they were so few and far between and so yes and I think there is that thing of you need to see it to be it and yes and while you can still have great mentors and I have had great support from male bosses and, and different things it's great to see how many women are ha- having much more of a leadership role you know in whether it be in large practice or running their own practice and their own practices are really successful practices yeah, I mean right. that was another thing I think we talked about just looking at the Think Brick Awards and looking at yeah these people like yourselves and that had been with brick for so long but also that's really intimidating Mm. and so how can we get that younger generation not to feel intimidated by these great giants of architects Mm. with such beautiful history and and wonderful projects and then we started this new entrant award and now every year 50 percent of the entries are from new entrants and i think that's just fabulous Mm. that and i also think gosh what if we hadn't done that yeah you know yeah i think it is important to nurture that in that to help level the playing field and to shine mm. a light on that emerging talent because mm. for a long time that didn't happen in across lots of award platforms or whatever but even there was one I think one of the early ones was, was the, the Institute of Architects Emerging Architect Prize mm. which I think I won maybe 2013 or 14 and then and Mel's won it and Amy's won it's quite funny really to kind of see but in some respects it kind of because it gives it kind of elevated and pushed people to do things that they might not have put their hand up yes. you do have to I think push Mm. or encourage people because often women can be reluctant leaders because for whatever reason and I think it is really important whether it be the institute with the the president role kind of I can fully see that that was kind of John Clements getting in there and saying oh you should go into national count I had Mm. no intention Mm. doing any of that kind of stuff but we need to we need to have more architects in general sitting on boards and sitting outside of the profession influencing society and community about that architects don't just design buildings that they're Mm. kind of design thinkers and are very good at solving problems Mm. and they can be kind of broad ranging and so if we can nurture that young architects whether it be women or men but sometimes we need to kind of encourage that and give them a platform I think the other thing that I guess constantly surprises me and again I guess it's we were talking a little bit about recruiting team members but then even also with the awards I think you can never just underestimate like putting yourself there because you don't know who you're up against mm. it can be really good yeah. or it could be absolutely no one yeah that's right. and I think that's uh, uh, that's what I've learned just yeah. looking at some things mm. going wow that was definitely the year to put an entry in that yeah, category yeah. you know <laughs> or, yeah, but also sometimes some someone's first project just might be absolutely stand out you yes. know for whatever reason and that's fantastic and so why sh- it yeah I suppose there is that kind of you know confidence level yeah but you've got to be in it to win it so, Claire, you touched on it a little bit before, but can you tell me about your involvement with Nightingale Housing and what that is, just for people outside of Melbourne? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a housing provider that was founded by Jeremy McLeod, who's an architect and director of Breathe. Mm-hmm. And essentially, I think he took it upon himself to kind of build with a group of architects 
back in maybe 10 years ago, mm. a building called The Commons. And that kind of had was an eight-storey building. It got great reviews, lots of awards. He kind of felt there needed to be more alternatives in the apartment area and something that was far more sustainable and nurtured community. And so essentially bought a site to do another development under the name of Nightingale, but needed to raise um, equity because mm. trying to get architects or funding for, for an architect, self-employed architect, is a bit tricky. So he kind of contacted a whole lot of friends and Ben and I ended up sort of micro-investing. He kind of got $100,000 lots to kind of build this project. And there's a whole lot of nuances that are a bit different to the kind of traditional market. But but typically, multi-res is a speculative platform. A developer will build something, sell it, do pre-sales. They need to get a certain amount and then people will settle and move in. Mm-hmm. And they can be owner-occupiers or rent investors. Mm-hmm. But there had been a real pattern in Melbourne because of a lot of a lot of housing was being built really as this commodity. And it was all about people buying properties, getting their 5% return. And ultimately, I don't think there was a lot of care on what the buildings, how they functioned, how they how, the, how people lived in no. them. So it was really depressing. And really, an apartment in Melbourne, you would kind of think it's normally something at the beginning of life that you tend to have as a younger person mm. or maybe older in life. But I certainly, I've lived in as a young adult in great, 40s apartments and they're built well and they're you know great but many of the new ones weren't so Mm. this was kind of an alternative to that trying to show how it was trying to build a community so it was it was not about a commodity an investment for people to make money on it was about owner occupiers buying in they develop a sense of community there's diversity so you might have young families you might have older women there Mm -hmm. was a real interest from older women first home buyers Mm -hmm. and so that you get this kind of melting pot of people people who don't want to live in a single house by themselves they want that sense of community they want that security of being on an elevated level but also having low maintenance that they can kind of lock it and go or whatever so anyway it's a it's a fairly long story and I'll keep it short because I know a lot of people know quite a lot about it but essentially this one became the kind of first case study and there are a whole lot of sustainable principles too Correct. where it's kind of no fossil fuels, it's carbon neutral in operation, there's no gas connected, there's large PV panels on the roof, there's embedded networks and kind of shared hot water service, they're, they're low cost to run, cars are discouraged, no air conditioning often. And now as the model has kind of evolved, there's a kind of a mandate to try and secure 15% of them for community housing, housing. providing, yeah, yes. which is great. So it's kind of evolved. That was finished in, I think, a couple of years ago. That one was finished. But we're now working on one where we're the architect and developer with five other architects called Nightingale Village, and it's with Breathe, Kenny Nolan, Habel, Austin Mayard Architects, Architecture, Architecture. And it's really, it's been a long journey and kind of, a whole new skill set so there's the yeah. kind of the architect component is the small bit yes <laughs> the developer part that's the kind of huge steep learning curve can be very stressful at times because essentially we had to kind of raise equity individually mm. uh we've got 24 investors in ours and i ultimately feel extremely responsible not only for the money i put <laughs> in of mine and we invested in kenny nolan's and in ours but also everyone else's money and oh, so sure. there's capped returns it's still kind of a development at risk that the funds are at risk but what's so exciting is the kind of the, the collective, you know, it's it's six separate buildings, we're closing a road, we're turning that into more of a little pocket park and just that, that, that a building should be far more than just what it is. It should contribute to the street and to the broader community. So anyway, it's due yeah. for completion later this year. We'll be excited to see it finished. I, I just think it's another wonderful pun the pun illustration of what architects can do, and which is why I wanted to lead into it because it was from those little things I think it's just such a wonderful and I think it gave an opportunity for practices like mine 
which we were mainly known for house, single houses, alts and ads and new builds, mm-hmm. and really hadn't done any multi-res. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gives you that foray in a supported environment yes. to go in. And now we're doing so much more multi-residential housing and with kind of a focus on affordable housing and social housing and we're even doing some specialist disability housing, you know. So it, it just, it gives you that new insight, but mm. also it kind of shows the benefit sometimes of having design-focused practices delivering mm. those projects rather than it being done by practices that just dumb a dozen. There's always that kind of commercial challenge and pressure on completely commercially driven developers. I mean, the good thing is the market has changed a bit in the last five years. That mm-hmm. There are good operators out there that know that there's a more discerning public Um, Mm -hmm. that do want more sustainably designed buildings, that ones that are going to last a long time and and be good to live in. But the the beauty with Nightingale is that it was design-led. So the architect is the developer. And so ultimately, if you're the developer, you control the the purse strings. And, you know, the the budgets are tight. It's still got to stack up in the feasibility. But ultimately, we can choose whether we do X or Y, Mm. whereas too often... In commercial development, the architect isn't privy to the cost plan, mm-hmm. is not always involved in the value management and the, the final iteration. And so I think that's really valuable and it kind of speaks volumes about the value of design. I totally agree. And I, I'm always curious when I said architects, was this design the one you started off with? And then you either hear the good story or the bad story. Mm. But a lot with a lot of those big developments, mm. they haven't been great stories. Mm. And you've had the main design piece of it being cut out, you yeah. know, so I and think it's, it's great. Of, and it's kind of terrifying when that happens mm. because these buildings, they should be up there for minimum 50 years. And the... The actual cost of construction, if you look at the life cycle costs of a whole building, the, the cost of construction, delivering the whole building is only kind of 2 or 3%. And yeah. the running costs are kind of 85%. And then the design fees are like 0.2%. So it's kind of just crazy yes. cutting things off. And I think there's a misconception often that, oh, architects just make things expensive or they just want to do this or they mm. just want to do that. But what I've actually found is because of the experience we've had delivering the village that we have actually gained this huge insight and knowledge and empathy for the developer in how hard it is. Yeah. And because they can see that knowledge, they are, I'm actually finding a lot of them are much more transparent. They can see the value that we can bring mm. because there's not that kind of protectionist or, or cynicism that an architect's yes. not going to... They should be the kind of active design lead and really a, a vital part of the whole delivery process of, of particularly that sector. It's such an important sector. Yeah. I think it's it's really inspiring and, and hopefully it catches on as an mm. idea. Mm. We will talk a little bit about brick now. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as I said, you've obviously built in it a lot. In fact, all of our products you've built in quite yep. a lot. Yep. What attracts you to it? It's so funny. I was thinking about this the other day that when I first started the practice, which was kind of 16 years ago, we took a little while to get some renovation clients, but we were putting forward brick back then. And I kind of think... People forget quickly how brick was completely out of favour. Everyone forgets that now. (laughs) I know, five to ten years ago. And I would be putting forward brick and people go, oh, no, that looks so suburban. I'm like, but it's brick, you know. And so it's kind of completely shifted and changed. And also probably back then the the types of bricks were much more limited and there was this kind of association with kind of public institutional buildings in suburbia. So... I think what's exciting about brick, well, I mean, when we're designing houses, even though we often know our clients and you know know how they want to live, but we we kind of 
put ourselves into their shoes. And so you want something that's you know obviously going to look great, but be low maintenance, long lasting. There's so many colours and sizes and proportions that can be used now. And I think you just can't go past the brick. You look at all the, I live in an Edwardian house with a, mm. a brick addition at the back. It's over 100 years old and the bricks still look fantastic. They were probably painted at one point. They were stripped again. They're back to red. It's kind of, it's a no-brainer, really. Yeah. And particularly in Victoria. I mean, what's interesting, we've got a couple of architects in our office that are from WA. And in WA, apparently, it's all cavity brick. You know, yes, whereas here we're all brick. brick veneer. It's yes. kind of funny, isn't it? It's shocking. So, but... Yeah, no, I think that's... So we, it's very rare for us to do a project that's not in brick. You'll be pleased to know, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a prerequisite, but no. <laughs> I am curious, and you're absolutely right. Everyone forgets, or they want to forget how different it was 10 years ago. Yeah. But I remember, I mean, we couldn't get architects to build in brick. Back no. then, we were doing a conceptual competition. And in fact, I was discussing with Mel the other day, the reason... We did a roof tile conceptual competition, which she participated oh, in, yeah. because the architects that had designed and built in brick, like Debbie Ryan from Charles McBride Ryan, yeah. she was like, well, we've actually built. Why aren't you rewarding us? And yeah, it was yeah, a fair yeah. call. And yeah. then I had to take this real sort of look at how do we change this up because mm. now we're starting to see people are designing in brick. And, yeah, when we look at the entries now, there's just we take, well, you don't take it for granted, but mm. they're everywhere. Yeah, so yeah. Well, yeah. I think it, what was the material of choice? It was a lot of render, wasn't it, back then? Everything yes. was rendered. But Probably metal cladding or timber. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of lightweight, I think, and, and everything was rendering, but it was all cracking. Mm. So everyone was starting to see render didn't go so well or required a lot of maintenance, as yeah. you've touched on. Mm. So, But then, again, you're right around... Everyone thought there were just two colours and, yeah. and all of these mm. things. So, But I think too, I suppose we used to have all the kind of challenges with councils too with facade articulation as one of the kind of requirements that they needed. And it's render. Typically you can do some really nice cement renders but it kind of can have a flatness to it, mm. whereas the beauty of something like brick with that repeated module, there's A, there's all the kind of laying methods, but even a simple brick wall, the way the sun hits it and the colour variation. And I, I still remember Roger Wood from Woodmarsh when I worked for him, he, he used to use the example when a planning officer complains about a building not having articulation, he always used to say, you just look to the NGV. It's like this huge wall of just one material of bluestone in which was in it's in kind of big you know, mm. slabs with kind of brick format and it's so true because the inherent quality of the material is the beauty that all you need in that yes. kind of facade and it's this kind of enormous wall and of course everyone loves that so that was always a good thing that I, I kind of pull that one out from time to time <laughs> steal that from him and Claire you've obviously been the president of the Institute of Architects and what is that sort of how has that changed your perspectives about the role of architects or or hasn't it no, I think it has enormously. I think it's very easy to get to be head down, bum up in practice. Practice is busy and can be all consuming. And I think getting involved more in the Institute really opened my eyes to the importance and the necessity for advocacy and policy change and, and getting out there and talking about what architects do. And again, a bit like before, I think there's often this misconception that architects might be they're just focused on aesthetics and building nice buildings and it's yeah while there might be some architects that that's their primary driving aim a lot of the vast majority I would argue are completely passionate about the built environment the cities mm. we live in the environment the, the urgency with climate the crisis that we've got currently and 
what makes our cities and towns good to live in. And mm. so I think, again, taking on that role was a kind of steep, unexpected kind of learning curve and something, again, the skills you wouldn't kind of learn running a practice and some challenging bumps along the way. But it was, I don't know, it's really its really interesting. And it kind of, it forces you to do all those things that you find really difficult, mm. like public speaking and live interviews on radio and all that kind of stuff, which is terrifying and writing. It's not my you know, expertise, but... There was people to help with that. And I think I've always been a big believer in kind of continually pushing yourself with things that you find difficult yes. because it's just you get better at them, you know. And I still remember having to give, I think, one of my first kind of, I can barely call it a public lecture, but it was just a lecture to RMI student, RMIT students in the lecture theatre I always used to attend as a student. And I was, this I probably would have been only a couple of years into practice. And so you kind of look at where you've been and where you can get to. And I still, I still hate doing live interviews on radio or any of that it's terrifying but it kind of it's good for architects to have a voice and to be because we often I think have struggled as a profession to be I think architects should be listened to and revered like the AMA or the you know medical Mm. association or lawyers are because I mean much like the the AMA they're looking at public health and the public Mm. good and I would argue that that's what the institute and and architects really are there to do as well. Mm. I would agree with you on that. Yes, and I, I think it's I'm a bit similar to yourself. I think if there's something I don't like doing, I just make myself continue to do it. Mm. And then people say, you must love doing that. And it's like, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just trying to get better at it. Yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> or get over it, you know, so it doesn't. And I think what's interesting, I mean, I certainly had a few people in the early years go, oh, you were really nervous. I mean, you can kind of tell, but so often you think, you're doing worse than you actually are too. Yes. So the one thing I always say is don't admit that you're nervous. Don't admit <laughs> that you're not good at it. Just do it. And are you, there's often that kind of imposter syndrome of feeling, why yes. am I doing this? And someone said to me the other day, she said, oh, I'm so nervous. I'm not very good at it. I said, I could not tell. Yes. You just So you do have to kind of fake it till you make it sometimes. Yes. But you can still so. do that authentic way. And I actually think showing vulnerability is an endearing quality too. And I think that that's something that's maybe people have become more accepting of and people are interested in a story they don't just want this kind of something to be sort of spoken at I think mm. so I don't think there's anything to be and that took me a little while to kind of get my you know head around yes. but I think it's really interesting it's actually. true yeah. yeah we've talked a little bit about architects but where do you see brick going in the future or question I think there's got to be more as in across the board in construction because construction is such a consumer of material and Brick is already this long-lasting material and having longevity already makes a material really sustainable. Mm-hmm. But there, I know there's been some innovation with some bricks on, you know, more green bricks yep. you know, where they're kind of, there's not as much energy mm. um, that goes into the, the kind of manufacture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting thing to kind of develop. And there's certainly, other great thing with brick is often it's kind of very local. We have had a tendency to be using quite a few bricks from WA though lately. So I feel <laughs> sort of slightly guilty that they've got to travel a bit further. I don't know. I still think there's as much as there's still interesting shapes and and colour, and which is often related to the clays. I still go, mm, wouldn't it be great if there was a colour like this? Or, you oh, know, okay. So I still think that there's more because there's such an appetite and such a demand for it. Yes. For bricks, that I still think there's kind of more. I think shapes, colour, as in shapes, not necessarily even the rectangle, but like are they profiled? Or I think there's some exciting directions that bricks could go in. Well, Claire, thank you for your time today. We're going to head into the rapid fire questions here and all answers are acceptable and I will try not to interrupt. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Definitely a paper, in physical paper. Physical paper. Handwriting or typing? Probably typing. I'm much quicker at typing. 
For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen, or an e-pen? Yeah, no, I use a pen. A pen? An artline pen. And a fat one and a thin one. Do you like to read books or listen to audio? Definitely books. I'm still not onto the Kindle. I kind of love a paper book in my hand. I can't. So, yeah. What's important to you, style or substance? I think an equal mix of both. Coffee or tea? Coffee in the morning and tea for the rest of the day. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new? Vintage. Okay. Call or text? Call. I love a chat. <laughs> Travel back in time or into the future? Oh, it's a bit pessimistic. I, I'm kind of scared. of. I, I'm not sure what the future holds, so definitely back in time. Yeah. <laughs> Exterior. Some people have said they're too scared to go back in time. <laughs> Exterior or interior? Interior. Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Equal parts. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simple. Claire, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>